This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontier show number 59, recorded on December 10th, 2019. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we cover cybersecurity, big data, and technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, you can always uh, send us an email. Jim at TheAverageGuy.tv. You can catch Christian over there. Christian at TheAverageGuy.tv. You know, he's the smart guy, so you probably want to send him the email. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jake Carlson. Of course, Chris, Christian is available at Borg Whisper. TheAverageGuy.tv, powered by Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. Christian, I just did a bunch of updates out at TheAverageGuy.tv uh, two weeks ago. I broke some stuff in the process. But in doing it, super fast, super reliable. I just, I'm always surprised. I think we got a, a WordPress upgrade. Yeah, uh, several, several upgrades to the platform. Uh, WordPress did come out with their 5.3 uh, production release branch. So that's out there. Big update. Um, the Maple Grove platform has upgraded its head end bandwidth. So you should see uh, even more performance for some of our large workloads. Um, so better better latencies, more bandwidth. We, we, we keep it coming. Um, also running for our holiday special, like last year, if you use uh, promo code CyberFrontiers, all one word, uh, caps, you will get 10% discount at checkout for any of our plans or services. Yeah, plans start as little as $10 a month, and they're WordPress optimized and great for podcasters. I know that because I'm there as well. So There's a platform for podcasters. So if you want white glove service end-to-end, getting your community online and running, we're the place to do it. Um, and that's, you know, not limited to podcasting. We can support other types of web custom applications. So Christian, I'm going to ask you to slow it down a little bit because I I just don't even believe it's real. It's so fast. So Maple (laughs) Grove. We'll add some hops for you. (laughs) Just could you do, just slow it down a little bit. Okay. Throw some ARM processors in there or something. Maple, (laughs) Maple Grove Partners. Dot com. Christian, good to be back with you. We have a guest uh, tonight as well. Why don't you take in second and introduce him? Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners who have been with us since the beginning, we have a returning guest to the show going back to Cyber Frontiers Episode 5, uh, Franz Payer. Um, Franz is the current uh, CEO of Cyber Skyline, which Franz, why don't you uh, kind of recap for us? What is Cyber Skyline? Sure. So uh, that's a surprisingly big question, but uh, in a nutshell, CyberSkyline is a cybersecurity skills assessment platform. And um, our, our goal is basically to help people understand cybersecurity skills, whether that is an individual practitioner, uh, you know, faculty at a school, employers. We're really just trying to provide hands-on, you know, realistic scenarios so that you can understand your abilities and how that compares to the rest of the industry. And, and kind of walk us through from the start, right? That vision you just gave us now as a snippet is definitely a evolved vision from where you guys started the company. I think this is your fifth year of operation now, correct? As a startup? Uh, yeah. So we incorporated in uh, 2014. So I think we're at five and a half years at this point. Yeah. Um, but originally the company started as a, just a normal um like competition platform. So uh, when when we were in our uh, cybersecurity program back in Maryland, um, we were using that as a way for the rest of the students in our classes to just get some hands-on experience. Uh, we just build our own challenges and stuff and then have everyone else do it. Um, and then we found out that we could actually make this into a real product. Um, there's a huge need for 
being able to measure cybersecurity skills, um, you know, especially with, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to validating training, all these different things. And so we took this little pet project that was, we're just working on the side and then, you know, graduated and made it a full-time job. When did you have the crystallizing moment that you knew this was something you wanted to do more as a, uh, a hobby, I guess? As, like, as when a hobby. Did, like, when did you know it went from college project to hackathon development to wait a second, we have a company on our hands? I mean, <laughs> I think it happened at the beginning of senior year. And uh, my co-founder, Toby, and I were just driving somewhere in his car. And um, we're like, well, what, what do we do after college? Like, what, like, what are we doing? Because that's about, you know, beginning of senior years when everyone's like, okay, where am I going to work after college? A lot of uh, people have that, you know, nailed down by October. So we only, we're only a couple of weeks, uh, months away. And then by that time, we actually had been running large national competitions. So we were um, running the National Cyber League competition, which at the time had a couple thousand people per year. Um, and the, um, we also had the, uh, the NSA day of cyber where we put through like 50,000 people through that and it was good money for paying tuition, but then we're like, well, let's take the plunge and, uh, it's enough money to sustain ourselves out of college. And, you know, we, this is, uh, is a big thing that we could really make happen. And that's kind of been, um, our deciding factor is like, Hey, it's enough to pay the bills. I think this is cool. When else are you going to do a startup? Uh, let's do it now. And that's what we did. It's it's unusual, I would say, for the majority of people graduating from a four-year undergraduate program to want to take the risk to kind of start something completely from scratch. Um, and I think most people would not have the appetite for that level of risk. What was the largest risk for you guys going into operating as a full-time startup? I mean money right like we had our existing uh contracts when we were in college but it wasn't at that time it wasn't enough to sustain the both of us um and that was kind of like the okay you know are we gonna be able to generate enough money to like justify us going full-time on this uh, are we gonna end up on the streets and stuff like that turns out we figured it out um we didn't end up on the streets it gets bumpy sometimes but um I mean, that is by far the biggest risk. And especially when you're going a startup, when you want to hire someone else, you have a lot of situations where you get a contract and it's enough to hire, you know, a fifth of a person. You know, I can't hire a fifth of a person. I got to take on, you know, four of these things, do like a lot of work outside of what a normal person would do. I do like, you know, uh, like my effort plus an additional 80% until I finally get that last one where I can justify hiring someone full-time and I don't want to hire someone unless I can guarantee that I can pay them for the next year. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that, that's the biggest risk is always like the cash flow coming in and, and, and worrying that, you know, you might end up on the street. Now, thankfully um, we set ourselves up for engineer salary and not what does it actually take for me to keep my shirt on. Um, so sometimes you dip a little bit under and it's fine because um, you can still pay rent, but um, it's kind of, you're missing out on opportunity costs, I suppose is the biggest thing. But I, I could take a stable job somewhere else, um, and not have to worry about, oh, I might be, you know, 20% under my salary this year because something happened, uh, or something didn't happen. Sure. And, and the company itself, the market that you're competing in, obviously cybersecurity as a large domain is a billions upon billions market. When we start looking at the specific market segment of kind of, training, education, um, 
empowerment for lack of a better word to put people on the path where they can have a successful cyber career. Um, what do you estimate that market segment is for your business and where has cyber skyline over its iterations become a market discriminator from your competition? Sure. Um, well, let me just start with kind of exactly what we do so you, people can understand better of like how, how we fit into the equation, but um, effectively what we do on the, um, you know, hiring slash HR side is we provide cybersecurity skills assessments that employers can send out to candidates um, and automatically validate the skills that they may have. So um, there are a lot of different products like this in the computer science space. Um, so big one, I think, is, is HackerRank, which just tests your coding ability. And we provide a similar service for cybersecurity. Um, additionally, with... Um, with, with the recruiting side is we get, have the ability for our company to launch a public challenge to source candidates. Um, and so we can bring in some candidates, we can push down on social media and attract candidates that way. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, companies can then convert them over and save a lot of time and especially with engineering time doing the interviews. Um, we kind of provide that first layer of screening so that um, recruiters aren't just passing over completely unqualified people to engineering and wasting their time. Um, and then the second thing that we do uh, for companies is we provide them with, uh, you know, same type of assessments, but using this for pre and post training, you know, what was the value of that training course? Did my skills actually improve? Um, so we fall in multiple different segments, even on the enterprise side with some of the budget coming in from uh, recruiting and then, you know, some of the other budget coming in from training. Where we kind of fit in in all of this is uh, we primarily target companies that have very large cybersecurity teams, um, primarily financials, government contractors, uh, managed cybersecurity providers. Those are the big ones. Um, and the way that we distinguish is that there actually there, there are too many companies doing this right now. Um, there's some companies doing it on the computer science side, like I mentioned with HackerRank, but not a whole lot of companies doing this in cybersecurity. And there's starting to be a little bit more comp competition there. But I think the big way that we differentiate is kind of a lot of the data and the analytics. So we don't just give you a, you know, 80, 90% score. We're actually saying, hey, you're top 10% of the industry or your bottom 10% of the industry or whatever that is. And we can do segmentation on that and all that stuff and um, really drive home a lot of the business value there by saying, you know, these are insights that um, actually help you hire and de-risk your, 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 your odds of making that hire. Um, and so that, if I had to put a number on it, um, you know, in terms of how big the market is, I don't know if I really could, to be honest, um, because it's still not quite a defined market. But um, you, you've got a multi-billion dollar market for just you know, tech, engineering, hiring, and HR and all that. Um, and we're, we're a piece of that pie. And kind of talk through for our listeners, what is the core aspect of the Cyber Skyline platform, right? So, you know, as a broad narrative, um, there are related companies that might call it like cyber gamification, right? Where you're playing mm -hmm. a game or competition, but Cyber Skyline is a little bit different. What makes it unique? So if, yeah, if I try to simplify exactly what we do, um, just imagine LinkedIn for cybersecurity, but instead of everyone self-reporting their skills, they're actually going through hands-on technical screening assessments that measure their ability in objective fashion. Um, so fundamentally, we're not just an assessment 
Um, mm -hmm. We are a, a network and a platform for, for facilitating that. So unlike Hacker Rank or any other product where you just go and take one assessment, you get one score. Everything that an individual does on our platform feeds into their overall profile, and they can use that as you know my personal profile, my personal timeline of growth. They can provide that to employers. They can use that in their classes to figure out how they can improve and all these different things. And that's the real value is the fact that it's not just a one one and done thing. It's it's a living, growing profile that um, that I'll, I'll stick with you as you, you, know, you pursue your career in cybersecurity. And how would you say the experience translates or is different between someone going on to a LinkedIn-like platform and having their skills ranked and assessed versus when someone comes into a hosted Cyber Skyline competition where you're hosting a competition maybe for something like Maryland's National Cyber League? Yeah, so um, stuff like LinkedIn, um, a lot of those assessments right now are primarily just knowledge-based. Um, so all those automated assessments you're getting, either you're self-reporting your skills or you're doing multiple choice questions or fill in the blank. And we're very much focused on the um, the hard skills. So we will actually set up an environment. Um, let's just say you're screening for someone who can do incident response. So all, all those other assessments that are the traditional providers right now are just gonna ask you, what would you do in this situation? Um, you know, we got breached, what's the next step that you would take? Which is a hypothetical. And we actually take it one step further and we say, here are all the forensics data. Here's the forensics evidence of what happened from a breach. Um, we, we did a case study with Capital One where we actually uh, simulated the target breach. Someone broke in, stole credit card information, and we were like, here are some you know, forensics logs. Tell me who their hacker is. How did they get in? You know, what, what vulnerability, what services, uh, what information do they steal? All these specific tasks that you would need to perform on the job if you got hired to do incident response, that's what we're having you do. And you're proving those, those technical skills. It's not a hypothetical. Uh, and so that's the, the big difference. And when you put that in a comp competitive team environment, um, it makes it a lot more enjoyable, especially when we do stuff with teams. Um, and, and the biggest feedback that we get from, uh, from players is that they actually enjoy the going through the assessment. It's not like they're taking a, a test at school where everyone kind of hates it. Uh, we have a 93% um, you know, satisfaction rating with our, uh, with our assessments. And it's, it's because it's, it's gamified and it's it more interesting than just, Hey, you know, let me fill in the blank. Franz, how do you stay up to date? I mean, there's a lot of changes going on all the time and mm -hmm. it's, it's a moving target. I mean, you, to keep the assessment fresh, to keep the scenarios fresh, how do you guys stay on top of that with, with, with everything that's going on and, and kind of stay current? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. We get that all the time. Um, it, it's actually rather simple, which is we just listen to, to the news and security feeds. So whenever there's a new, you know, the Marriott breach, the Target breach, like I mentioned, um, you know, we actually look at what happens in those breaches and we build basically a sandbox environment. And we're like, here's a scenario that repl replicates exactly that. So, um, you know, Capital One got breached a couple months back because they were leaking S3 buckets. A lot of companies getting breached that way. We have an S3 bucket uh, scenario within our platform. Um, at the end of last year, uh, eBay Japan got breached because they were leaking their, um, their Git repository on the website by accident. 
And uh, just like two months before that, we saw that as a as an emerging threat on different uh, feeds. And we're like, okay, we'll build a scenario for that. And then one week after we pushed that out to our users, eBay J Japan got compromised in exactly that way. So just by listening to the feeds and, and seeing what's happening out there, we're able to stay relevant without having to put in a whole lot of resources. Um, you know, chances are when you see a big breach, uh, like with Capital One or eBay, um, other companies are wanting to make sure that they're defending against that. So we just, you know, cater to that and, and build new challenges that way. And in some sense, you've built a learning management system, right? Users can log in, they can keep track of things. You have a, in, in some ways, you have a resume builder because you're allowing them to come in and kind of build their resume based on skills that you're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you balance just as a developer, as an owner, as a as a CEO? I'll call you that. Um, can I? Do you guys have you have you given yourselves that title? Yeah, yeah I'm technically I'm technically CEO and awesome. Team. All right, I got the title right. That's awesome. How do you balance the platform build out? Because that's one thing, right? Making sure the platform works. That's not necessarily cybersecurity in a sense. And it is maybe in some ways. But but there's the platform build out with all the cybersecurity work that you have to do as well. There, There's a little, you know, those are kind of two different skills. How do you find as with the two of you, how do you guys, how do you kind of balance that out to make sure both the platform's being built and you're staying up to date with cybersecurity pieces? Um, I mean, it's, it's definitely a big challenge. We basically, um, the way that we do it is we do a lot of the sourcing for the, for the cybersecurity stuff on our free time because we're just generally interested in the space. So we'll be looking on, you know, uh, Reddit's, uh, NetSec, um, you know, subreddit, um, looking at Twitter, looking at all these different feeds, just figuring out what's out there on our free time. Um, and then what happens is most of our time is actually spent on the, the, the developer side. And then we specifically allocate cybersecurity, you know, content development time in, within our schedule. Um, and then of course, when a customer comes along and says, Hey, I want, you know, X, Y, and Z, then that gets plugged into the, to the schedule. But, um, for the most part, it's primarily driven by the, the needs of the, the technical capabilities. Um, and then the cybersecurity component is just the, the content that feeds into that engine. So we're constantly tr trying to figure out, you know, how do we build a better, better, uh, better engine? And then when someone's like, okay, I need you to go far, then we figure out, you know, how do we build the, the fuel that we put into the engine? Um, and that's kind of, you know, done that as a, as an as, you know, as needed basis. And we just make sure we have enough stockpiles so that we're never left in a situation where there's no new content going out to our users. It's, it's kind of sad that we live in a world where that content's so easy to get a hold of, right? And you you never run out of scenarios. You never run out of, right? There's always a breach happening of some kind. There's always opportunities of things that went wrong to use as an example, right? You, you kind of mentioned that with the Japan eBay breach. It's, it, they're happening, Christian, maybe at a, at, a, at, a, at a more frequent rate these days than before, or do we see them backing off a little bit? I think it's a little hard to say. I mean, certainly from 2017 would have been the height of data breach years just by uh, volume reporting for years. So we're definitely in 2019, our overall data breach rate is much lower. However, I don't think the impact of a company getting breached or the mechanisms in which they can get breached has lowered at all. If anything, um, attacks continue to get more targeted and more sophisticated now that the low-hanging fruit has largely been plucked off the tree over the last five years. Uh, but I don't think the financial damage or impact to companies has that that threat model has not changed much for an organization. So in terms of the 
the scope of what it means to deal with a data breach, we're, we're still in the same playing field. I would say the overall volume, though, being lower indicates two things. One, uh, the level of, of advanced persistent threats has increased um, because of the level of difficulty going up. And two, the overall um, organizational effectiveness properly managing IT resources and, and platforms has allowed the quote-unquote data breach count to go down. Franz, have you seen in the years you've been doing this, and you, you kind of have to program these scenarios, do you um, do you find students getting smarter uh, uh, with these than when you started four years ago? Or has, it, has the student kind of always just maintained a similar quality? Are we getting better at training and educating our students or is it just maintaining or getting worse? Um, yeah, that, that's a very tough question to answer because I think um, as a whole, I don't think that there has been a huge change in, in student ability. Um, and, and it's primarily driven by the fact that we have so many new people going into the field and you're just getting way more beginners and it's kind of, you know, the average goes down when you have a bunch of beginners coming in because I think, you know, the people who have been in, uh, you know, in different academic programs uh, have been learning about cybersecurity for a couple of years now, their average skill level is going up pretty well. So something that we see within the National Cyber League competition that we operate is that on the high end with the, um, with the schools that have kind of a very consistent program, they have uh, the same students competing in this uh, year after year, they have developed better strategies for learning new technologies on the fly, um, for working together as a team. And that's demonstrated through, you know, their ability to, to solve these challenges that we offer with higher accuracy rates in, in, in quicker times. Um, However, like I said, on the low end, you have a bunch of new people coming in. It's their first time and they don't quite know what they're doing. So I think we are producing um, more and more qualified people, um, but it really depends on where you're looking at. I mean, you have a lot of different four-year universities which don't do a good job of giving enough applied cybersecurity skills. I, I don't know, uh, Christian, I don't know if you, you took the cybersecurity course back at uh, Maryland, the uh, 414. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So if you recall, like a vast majority of the class had no clue what the hell they were doing. Correct. It, it's just a people, bunch of people who are in a 400 level class. They are a junior or senior. They should know all, all they, there is to know about, you know, the basics of how, you know, different operating systems work and Linux and all these things. And you have people asking, how do I change directories uh, from the command line? And you're like, whoa, this is a 400 level security class. You know, this is so foundational that like, <laughs> but I mean, we also have kids from uh, community colleges. I mean, I, I hesitate to say kids as well, because you have a lot of, uh, you know, people who've been in the industry coming back to get cybersecurity degrees and, you know, they get um, kind of left behind by big employers because they're not from a big brand name university. But a lot of the people who are not from the more you know well-known schools actually learn a lot more of the necessary skills to perform on the job um, tasks. And, you know, you can basically I think what you're getting from four year university is a lot more theory and what you're getting from the other schools are, is a lot more you know practical stuff. It's applied. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's applied, and it's great to know the theory. But if you're not getting the applied stuff in your classes, you got to get 
the applied stuff elsewhere. And, you know, some people like, like Christian and I, we, we, we got those because we were actively seeking those. Um, I think schools should be doing a lot more to encourage their students and facilitating ways for their students to build up those technical skills. Uh, there's applied technical skills because if they're just covering the theory, then you're gonna have you know these exact same situations where you have people graduating from you know a top 20 cybersecurity program in the US and they don't know how to change directories from the command line. And it makes no sense at all. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess one of the things that's interesting to me is how um, we've started creating a culture within the industry too, where in order to be a software engineer, you're not required to not necessarily be a full-scale security engineer, but you're also usually not required to have basic OPSEC security fundamentals as part of your training. So we put software engineers out that in theory know how to write performant, scalable, um, reliant code that meets a specific customer need feature ask and working back from that to produce an end result. But a lot of times writing code that is bug free somehow doesn't also fully translate to writing code that is raising the bar on security, right? And it, it starts to not scale well because the larger the industry gets a population of software engineers, for example, who don't think in a security-oriented mindset when developing their code, it lends itself to additional work and additional industry presence required in the, the IT security space and the cybersecurity space both offensively and defensively, because not all software engineers are equal when it comes to dev versus, or for lack of a better word, dev sec, right? Like a software engineer who understands the code that they're writing and what security implications it has. Have you guys found in any of the work that you've done so far, what is the level of interest from companies with respect to training pure thoroughbred cybersecurity practitioners that are, you know, using applied cybersecurity skills versus training, you know, people like software engineers who need to have some of these skills, even if they don't live and breathe security so that they're not adding to the problem. Yeah, that's a very um, divisive question, <laughs> depending on where you go, because there's I, we've seen people on both extremes where they they'll, they'll live or die by either of the two paradigms. The, the one paradigm where we should train all of our developers to be security conscious and keep them accountable for their security. And then the other paradigm of let the developers be developers, have one dedicated security person there to clean up the mess that might happen. Um, and I think it really comes down to um, incentives. And a lot of companies right now are tr trying to figure out how can we best incentivize uh, people? Uh, because if you try to, to, to go down one paradigm, but you don't have the right incentives, then you, you have a lot of mess. So uh, for example, developers are not being, in, in many companies are not being assessed on their ability to write secure code. There's no metric for, for, for doing that right now. What they are being assessed on is how quickly can you push out new features? So if you're going in with the mindset that all of your developers are going to be trained for security and that they're going to be stakeholders in the security posture of the company, but they are only being assessed on their ability to write new features, then you're not going to have an effective program because even if you put them through all the training, it's not going to stick until there's some incentive that makes it relevant to them. And security becomes just this thing that bogs everything down. 
Um, so we've seen companies just decide, hey, I'm going to have a dedicated security person. They're going to do look at all the code reviews, um, you know, stop anything bad from going in there. And then um, hopefully not build up too, too much animosity between the developers who want to push out features and the security people who want to slow things down. So I think it really comes up to management um, and their responsibility of saying, well, we need to make the process incorporate security you know, earlier so that's not an afterthought. Um, and I, I, I really don't think right now there's a you know, definitive program that I can point to. And maybe there is one, but I haven't seen it yet where they've got it down 100%. Um, you know, but I, I've seen companies do it both ways. Some are successful, uh, some are not. And it, it really comes down to, you know, listening to the developers, making sure that there's a security culture and that no one's feeling like, um, they're being held back because of security and, um, and, and, and adding it early into the process. If your security person on, on the team is just there to help with the, uh, code review, they're not able to help with the architecture and the design process. And when they find something bad in code review, it's, you know, very expensive to go back and fix it. Sure. And I, and I mean, in terms of the like level of scale too, it also causes challenges when you have now teams of software engineers or herds, I like to call them herds of cats that are all developing and working on different parts within the company. And then having to have security engineers not only be experts in their field of security, but then be experts on each of these different architectures or services or products that these teams are responsible for, right? Yeah. Um, so the, the human model probably doesn't scale too well there over time as industry moves forward. Um, with respect to your platform, like a lot of it right now is kind of B2B from your business model or or kind of gaining exposure to the masses through these competitions like NCL. Can you talk a little bit about um, where is the business going direction wise in terms of like an individual like myself being able to go sign up and do challenges as an individual without being a part of any formal competition or talent screen? Or is the model really going to be more focused on those kind of peer to peer interactions at the business level? Right. So, I mean, we actually do have a B2C product offering right now. Um, we have a subscription that people can sign up for. Um, right now, we've kind of just left it open for students uh, who do participate in our competition, and it's just an annual subscription where you can imagine it's like uh, like Code School or Plural Site or something where you, you pay a subscription, you get access to all the content year round. We add a new content every single month. Um, that's, that's a very simple B two C model, um, and our plan is to in the future continue adding in value there. Um, but I, I I think that where we add the most value to people is not by just giving them the keys to the, to the content library um, and then letting them roam free. Because what we found is that levels of engagement are rather low when you just have access to everything and, and, and no limitations. You don't know where to start. Uh, and we like doing a lot more structured things. So, um, you know, we kind of offer the individual B2C thing to get people on the platform, keep them engaged, but we want to continue basically providing individual experiences through our B2C campaigns. So whether that's running additional competitions in person or online or with the screening and stuff, uh, what we want the future to be is um, you have a, you know, a subscription on our platform that allows you to 
practice all your skills uh, continuously, continuously throughout the year. But that's not the only way that we want people to be engaging on our platform. We want you to, you know, have that thing so you can practice and 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 build up the skills. But you also do the other competitions and um, help help you know uh, allow us to help you when you're trying to get a job. Sure, got it, um, Jim. I I kind of think of um, Gallup only from the sense of Gallup does a lot of talent assessments and, uh, what are your top five strengths and, and a lot of related products in a weird way, how much similarities or dissimilarities do you see with Gallup's approach to measuring a person's talent and specifically here trying to measure cyber talent? Yeah, well, if you know, understanding the product, and we've been looking at this for the last couple of years with Franz, as we talked about this way back when they were first thinking about this and, and through the years, um, you know, the, the talent assessment that we use at Gallup really has 177 questions where we pair them against each other to say, are you more like this or like that? And it's really a self-assessment. You're kind of determining who you are based on your own experience. Franz, you can correct me if I'm wrong, as I'm looking more at your product. It, it really fits in a role of, I need you to do something to show me that this talent is there, right? Give me some, I want to go through these logs, do these things. It's more of a, there are some specific and, and you know, so it's kind of a specific role-based tool where it's like, hey, in cybersecurity, you're going to have to do these kinds of things in this role where Clifton Strengths is more a general tool looking for some general talent themes. In other words, when I, think about things or when I do things, I generally do them in this way. I think out loud or I think internally. I approach things based on relationships or I approach things based on execution. Franz, I think, and maybe you can uh, kind of talk to this a little bit, really more roles-based or skills-based than saying I can do these specific skills. How correct am I in that assessment of, of your tool? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty spot on. Um, we're, I mean, I think we'd be pretty complimentary to that. So we basically, yeah. we don't focus on EQ at all with a lot of the assessments that we're doing. Um, sometimes when you're in teams, we can do some EQ there, but it's not really, um, that's not really something we're objectively measuring. We just say, hey, this team did better because they were better. They're able to work together yeah. um, better. But yeah, we're very complimentary to those products because we're focused very much on the technical role-based skills. And then we are, we're still reliant on, you know, a Clifton strengths assessment or, you know, a normal, um, you know, recruiter, uh, technical uh, uh, recruiter um, phone screen or something like that, where they kind of measure the, um, the, the, the thinking of the person, the, um, the way that they work together, all those different things that would be important things to know about an employee before you hire yeah. them. And so we're, we're just focused on the technical side. Work style, you know, some of those, some of those working. Uh, Christian, you know, we also have a selection tool that helps us pick based on right fit to the organization. And so that's a kind of another level is your work style, one that fits well in the organization. Two, are we getting you assessed into the right role? This is where Franz fits in. And this really, I think, where these technical assessments are shine. You know, years ago, they weren't very good. I think they're getting really good now in what they can do and what they can assess. And then, of course, Clifton Strengths would help with how you go about to do that role. What kind of style are you going to have? How are you going to fit well on a team? What kind of what what additional talents are you going to bring to that? So I think that's a good and, and Franz, I think you're right. I think they really are. They very they complement one another really well, kind of based on the uh, the the dimension of the person that they're looking 
that makes sense, Christian. I think so. Yeah. I'm, I'm grokking it. <laughs> I'm taking I'm taking a moment of silence. You've to, taken them all. If it makes sense. Yeah. Franz, have you had Christian go through your? Have you have you had him actually go through a? a Christian's been through many of them. He's won a couple of these competitions too. Yeah, you have a, you got a smart watch or something for one of our. I did. In fact, I leave it on my desk. Um, really? I have the. Uh, it's a little bit interesting lately. I've been having problems with it, but my uh, my Android uh, smart watch here, hmm. the Motorola one, um, and then of course I defected to iPhone. So shame. But. Um, um, Bronze, yeah. what, kind, what kind of feedback have you been getting from employers a- after the fact? You've run some just recently. You've run some kind of big engagements. What are you hearing from them? I mean, what, what, what kind of feedback are you getting from the employers on on that side? Yeah, so I mean, the majority of the feedback is that it's just like the huge time savings. Um, every time we talk to the engineering team after we do one of these things, it's just like. Wow, <laughs> like why were we doing this sooner? Because a lot of the times you have candidates who are are you know typically lying on the resume to get through a lot of the recruiter you know screening because the recruiters don't know uh, how to measure a lot of these technical skills, and then it get, gets passed on to the recruit uh, to the engineering team, and the engineering team is wondering why is everyone so unqualified, um, and so you have this problem where the most you know, reliable, ethical people are not going to overfluff their resume. They don't look as good in comparison and engineering just gets stuck with all these, you know, liars basically. Uh, and it's so hard and so time consuming to go through that. And uh, we were talking to a couple of customers that were just asking, can we just like bypass the recruiter and then go straight to the results of your assessment and then start picking people from that? Um, and you know, we, we try to play this role where we're just empowering the recruiter to make decisions faster. The recruiter should only be really focusing on, is this person a good fit for the team? Do they work well with other people focusing on the human components of things rather than the technical skills? Um, and so, yeah, we always hear, you know, from the recruiter side, they're happy because, um, the, 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 the hire gets made much faster. It makes their metrics look a lot better. Um, you know, Obviously, if they can fill more candidates in a shorter period of time, that's what they're being measured on. And, uh, you know, engineers are never thrilled to be wasting their time interviewing someone who's completely unqualified. Yeah. Have you had engineers kind of question your assessment? You know, they're they're also like, well, maybe I'm the best at doing this as opposed to outsourcing it. Have you had kind of that pushback from an organization feeling like, you know, I know you you think you're doing a great job. Are the engineers, have you gotten pushback from engineers on what you guys are doing? Once in a while, I think um, what it really comes down to is, you know, they have their understanding of what they're looking for within the organization, and they might not think that we match that. Um, typically, in those cases, we actually support the ability for them to take their whatever assessment that they have and import it into our platform. Um, we've done that a couple of times, and it's not a huge deal. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people, um, you know, really feel that they have a better assessment, but if they're going to be spending hours upon hours or days, just sifting through all this noise because they have to manually grade it or they don't have a better process for it. Uh, eventually they relent and they're like, okay, (laughs) like, you know, maybe you're not perfect. Maybe I like doing things my way a little bit better, but you know, if it's going to cost me an arm and a leg, to you know, maintain it myself and all this time, then it's not worth it. And I can do my additional screening on top of what you're doing. Um, but if I can at least help cut down a lot of the noise for them, you know, it's added value to them. 
Are, are you able to customize your platform based on engineer feedback? In other words, if they gave you some feedback, like we'd really like these kinds of scenarios or we're in our areas, we see a lot of those things. Are you able to kind of customize what you're throwing at the students or, or, or your assessment to uh, taken into account their kind of needs. Yeah, and that's actually part of our content creation process is whenever you know we have that time set aside for creating new content, uh, we look at the priorities and the priorities are always driven by, you know, number one, what the customers are asking for, and then number two, what the users are asking for. Um, so, you know, big example is we've, we've gotten a lot of requests from customers to push more into IoT and push more into cloud security. Uh, IoT is a little bit harder to, uh, to assess over the internet, but there are still ways of doing that. But um, big thing with cloud security, um, that's when we started doing stuff like the S3 buckets um, and, and building those challenges that way. Um, you know, a bunch of different things are being driven by the feedback. Um, so it, it's, it's a matter of, do you have something in mind that you specifically want? Uh, if you, if so, then we can import that into the platform. If you just have a generic idea of, Hey, I want more cloud security stuff. Um, we just add that to our roadmap and then that gets pushed out on a regular basis. You've got some great um, help or uh, friends, let's say, uh, coming out of the ACES program that are around you. Do you guys lean on, do you have an outside um, kind of advisory council or a group you, you talked about, you kind of just keep your ear to the ear to the rail on what's going on in cybersecurity, but do you guys have an advisory group that you've built around you a little bit to get, you know, some additional help or advice with folks around you on, on what's going on? Um. So you mean in terms of just what's going on in cybersecurity? Yeah, just for the business, just having some outside counsel on other people's opinion, like, you know, say a Christian of from, from time to time getting some folks together. What are you guys hearing? Have you leveraged any any kind of groups like that? I mean, we have a, we have a couple of different ways for doing that. So, uh, I mean, we, we, of course, have all the guys from college. Um, you know, we catch up every once in a while. We share whatever's, you know, going on. Uh, we also have... Um, basically our own little group of people that we talk to who have been on our platform. So users of our platform who have graduated a little bit out of college and then now they're in industry, but they still like being part of our competitions and our platform. So they give us feedback and we're in constant contact with people. Um, through the National Cyber League, we actually have this group called the, uh, the Player Ambassadors, but it's basically another group of alumni um, and they're more geared towards specifically the competitions rather than the rest of what's going on with the company. Um, but they provide, you know, feedback on what, what do we need to be building? What's going on? What's new? Um, how can we uh, adapt to what's going on? And of course we have our own uh, advisors and mentors with, for the company. So, um, you know, we have people from the military, people from the financial industry, um, people who have run their own startups as well that we, we go to as resources as we build everything out. Good. Yeah. I, you know, I know it's important to get that kind of board of directors uh, feel, so to speak. So, you know, you're not feeling alone out there. I think you're pretty well connected in those communities. And that sounds that yeah. sounds pretty great. Just you're not at this alone. Right. That you got some folks. around. Yeah. And I mean, advice. honestly, I think um, that's kind of the biggest struggle when you are starting a company right out of college is the fact that you don't have a lot of those relationships from the get go. I mean, you just have the people, whoever your family knows. And whoever you met from school, that's what you've got coming out of college. That's all yeah. you've got. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my family isn't big into cybersecurity and uh, neither is my co-founder's family. And so we kind of just had what we had out of school and what network we can build on our own. And that was probably one of the biggest difficulties we had other than, you know, cash flow and how do we figure out, the uh, you know, the money and how to pay ourselves. 
But um, how do we get advice? Because we're going to this blind. Um, when you're a startup, you know, everyone says that you learn through failure. You only get so many failures as a startup before you burn. Uh, you, you crash and burn, right? You can get you can get a couple, but if every single thing that you do is a failure and you might be learning along the way, that might be great for you personally, but it might not be great for the company as a whole. Um, so it's always better to learn from someone else's mistakes. Mm-hmm. And we basically spent, you know, I got we spent like a whole year just trying to figure out how do we build that network and how do we meet new people who can provide us the advice and mentorship that we need. Um, and I think that's why people. Um, who actually have startups uh, have 10, 20 years of experience in industry first. That whole, you know, college dropout that's in a startup is a, is a huge misnomer. When we, when, we, <laughs> when we set out for this, we started joining some accelerator programs and we were like the youngest people there by far, like easily like 10, 15 years younger than everyone else there. Um, you know, I, I have not really met anyone else at these accelerator, accelerators, at least on the East Coast, um, that have been our age. I mean, West Coast is a completely different ball game, but I think you know what is normal for the rest of the country um, is people who have that you know many many years of of deep connections and, and, and mentors and um, people that I can talk to, and that's when they decide to create a startup. Yeah, we we at so Gallup we have an entrepreneur tool to help people uh, do this, do what you're doing, right from scratch. And and part of the exercise, one of the exercises, I think it's the fifth one you do, is kind of building that board of directors around you. And you don't have to call it that, but those people that kind of get that advice from. And I think you're right. I do think the on the East Coast it it skews a little bit older. As opposed to the West Coast, I, I don't know that for sure, but it, it does seem like, um, you know, it's a little, not, it's a, it's a little less risky that way, right? You said be in industry for a little while, jump out and do a startup, as opposed to on the West Coast. It may, you know, so you guys may be West Coasters as opposed to East Coasters, but uh, West Coast implants on the East Coast. <laughs> there you go. Well, the fact of the matter is, this is now kind of an established because you guys were working it in school for so long. Um, you got a three or four year head start on a startup in a pretty safe environment at school where you could kind of fail maybe a little bit more. Although I don't think, have you guys had a major a failure, so to speak, in it where you went, oh, that really didn't work. We should have done this. Have you run into those? I mean, knock on wood, but so far, nothing to date. I mean, um, we've been very, very cautious to make sure that um, all these different contingencies have been thought of. And I think that might be our security mindset. You know, as a good security practitioner, you're always thinking, all right, what can go wrong? And if it goes wrong, how bad is it going to be? And what can I do to mitigate the damage? Um, and that mindset has allowed us to avoid making a lot of, you know, p- potentially catastrophic mistakes. Yeah, we'll, we'll let Christian be the judge of that. Have you, have you, have you, sorry, have you had anybody try to, um, uh, you know, uh, students who may not have been so happy with those results, try and come back and uh, maybe break into your, to your own system? It, you know, um, have you had any kind of your own cybersecurity attacks on your system? Um, well, we constantly have people attacking us. The biggest one is that people are just running automated scanners and they just throw out all these alerts. We, <laughs> we, we recently, um, we've recently started a vulnerability disclosure program. And so we now have ways for people to report any vulnerabilities that they find. Um, but a lot of them are kind of just like, you know, if 
10 different things that happen, you know, very circumstantially, then I could potentially um, get someone's uh, session. Um, it's like, okay, well, then I guess you can submit answers on their behalf. Um, <laughs> we're, we're a little bit lucky in the sense that there there isn't a whole lot of um, risk that we have uh, in terms of what, like, you know, what you can get with any single user's account. Um you know, the big thing that we need protecting is our data. That's that, that's the main thing. But if you get access to someone else's account, you hack into their account, there's not a whole lot you can really do to mess with them. You're not collecting a lot of PII, in other words. Right. right? Yeah. Not- I mean, we have to go through vendor onboarding. It's like, what PII do you store? Name and email address. And that's that's all there is. Um, maybe some people really want to keep their score private. Occasionally, we do actually have people, um, you know, not want to be listed and stuff. And we give, their, they give them the ability to use a pseudonym. So that they're not showing up with their name publicly on leaderboards and stuff. So, um, you know, I guess you could figure out, you can reveal uh, the top people on the leaderboard and what who their identities are. How about the push to go international? Is there any um, market that you're looking at for running Cyber Skyline internationally? And if so, um, what privacy laws might you have to take into consideration with respect to GDPR uh, and otherwise? Great question. Um, so right now we are actually looking at. Um, doing stuff in uh, the UK. Um, Europe's a little bit tricky with skills assessments. I know Germany has very strict laws about it. So we have to be very selective with kind of how you can use skills assessments for hiring and HR purposes in Europe. Um, but in the UK, it's okay. Um, and we have to, yes, we have to be GDPR compliant. Um, that hasn't been too bad because we don't have a lot of different vendors. And so it's just a matter of you know, disclosing what data do we uh, do we have and how do we use that data, um, and then uh, we also have to worry about privacy shield. Um, so that basically just allows us to keep uh, the data of European citizens within the U.S. Uh, and those are kind of the two big things that we have to be worried about right now. Have you considered just setting up a separate instance in Europe that's completely separated from the U.S. and just maintaining two systems? Uh, we have considered it. Um, it's, it's something that we don't really want to separate the data per se. And it's also a situation where we have some customers who um, are multinational. So they don't want to have different systems to log into every single time. So yeah. we, we just want to have it as one unified system that they don't have to worry about. It's a real problem with, with GDPR in, in that in what you're saying is it all it sounds great when you think about, well, okay, in Germany, so to speak, we'll have it, you know, for them, we'll build it this way. Then the company comes in and they've got people all over the place and it's like, oh, okay, now we have to integrate this separated virtually, however you're going to do it. It has created a kind of a, you know, a challenge in that area of exactly where data sits. And I don't know if GDPR has been necessarily completely tested in court. So there, while they have laws, we know those are all testable, right? They all have to really go through the court systems to start being tested. So there are people who are like, what does that really mean? And and I'm not sure we have necessarily all the solid definitions down pat. We have some great ideas, certainly. Mm-hmm. But but I think there's some challenges that still are out there of exactly what that means. So we grapple with it. And I think everybody's kind of grappling with it. There was a whole industry that grew out of GDPR of people just trying to do that. We've Many of them met the deadlines, but we're kind of in that sweet phase right now where people are actually using it. And then they'll be tested. You know, I think we're going to start seeing GDPR and here in, well, not here, but 
in California as well as the way the rest of the United States goes. I think we're in that phase as well where that's going to kick in here pretty quick. And then, of course, that's going to go to court. And it's really, really important to see how the courts interpret then what laws have been passed. We're in the early phases of this. I mean, if we think GDPR is a known thing, we still got a ways to go before before we really know what it means. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> it's super complicated. Yeah, for sure. Christian, what else? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just trying to think where we... Um, I mean, comp- company-wise, I-, I feel like our listeners have a pretty good sense. Yeah. Uh, I-, I think I may have neglected to say you guys are um, point of presence online is cyberskyline.com, um, all one word. Um, Franz, what does the next year look like? Like, what does 2020 look like for Cyberskyline? Where-, where are the big focuses for you and um, in the direction you guys want to move? Yeah, so uh, big focuses for us are... Um, basically helping more companies run different recruiting programs. Um, so that means going to more conferences, running more competitions. Um, we were at the uh, Women in Cybersecurity Conference last year. We're going to be at the Women in Cybersecurity Conference again uh, this upcoming year. Um, there's, you know, expansion. I, ca- I can't say anything too much about specific conferences in the works right now, but we do have bigger conferences in the works um, as well. Um, also working with companies to basically run large public challenges. We just wrapped up one for Lockheed Martin back in October where we ran a large public challenge where uh, there's a, a URL that people can go and start an assessment if they were one of the 20 different schools that Lockheed Martin was hiring from for their uh, aeronautics division. And uh, we're, we're looking to doing more of those. So really helping students find employment and, and helping uh, employers find qualified talent. Um, and we're doing a lot of that in the college space. So expect to see a lot more with um, getting more college uh, engagement with industry. Cool. Well, Franz, do you find universities, I, I would think, you know, their career development centers and such, and such would be kind of incented to use a platform like this to get their students on it and employable. Do you find the universities are approaching you guys at all? Or is that a market where they're coming to you? Uh, curiously enough, with the um, with like the you know the, with those offices, it's it's not something that we've been getting because um, I think they're kind of hesitant to spend money in that regard. But what we have been getting inquiries from at schools are with the actual academic programs rather than the career offices, um, where they are interested in supplementing their curriculum because they see a lot more value. You know, very, I guess, rightfully so easily with the idea where I teach a class and then now I can have some hands on technical real world experience as well to supplement that. So uh, we actually have a couple of classes that are using our assessments as a capstone and the, the professor will teach to whatever curriculum that they have. And then at the end of it, you know, students do an assessment on our platform. Um, and so we'd be getting more inquiries in, in that regard and how do we, you know, integrate with LMS and, and help them build out some of their curriculum as well. And that's something that we're, we're, you know, vaguely taking a look into and how do we support all of that? Um, but I expect to see in the future as, as, as we get more and more employers on the platform, like, like Lockheed Martin, um, maybe the career offices will start reaching out a little bit more. And do organizations pay per seat? Do they pay per event? What's a quick rundown on a pricing model? Yeah, so what we charge um, employers is basically we just look at their um, their require the hiring needs for the year, how many people that they need to fill, 
uh, roles that they need to fill. And then we just charge them uh, an annual license just based on that number. And then, um, you know, obviously it's going to vary a little bit more if you want additional challenges and features. Um, but it basically comes down to a per hire per year price point. Good. And if folks want to contact you, if they have, they want to get more information, employers want to do that, how do they do that? Sure. So um, you can reach out to us on our website, cyberskyline.com. We have a contact us form on there. Uh, you can also reach out to me directly via email. My email is my first initial last name at cyberskyline.com. So that's F-P-A-Y-E-R at cyberskyline.com. And I think sales at gets you there as well. Right? Sales at gets you there. Yeah. Contact at gets you there. Um, we're very accessible or anything at cyberskyline.com probably comes to you right on Twitter on cyber, you know, at cyberskyline, uh, yeah. you know, we're, 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 we're everywhere <laughs> you can find it. Uh, Franz, did we miss anything, anything else that you'd like to kind of highlight, uh, before we wrap it? Um, no, I mean, I think that, that was, uh, the great conversation. I, you know, thanks for the invite. Thanks for having me back after all these years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, always love chatting with you too. And, uh, talk about the state of where everything's at right now. You remember that day we were down in the basement of the Aces? <laughs> I remember that, yeah. <laughs> good stuff. So, so great. Really good so stuff. So long ago. Good to see, like, for me, great to see those days watching you guys kind of go through this. And this has always been a project that's kind of been on the side for, for, for you guys. I've watched you and Toby do this over the last, you know, half decade. And kind of wondering where it would go. And I, and I don't know. I always kind of thought it would just be a product. I thought you guys would launch something and it'd be great. And, and you, you guys had a good, you've, you've always had a really good project uh, and, and a very good product. And so fun to see it big time at this point. And uh, I know you guys want to make it bigger, but uh, it, it's, it's fun to see it out and real and people using it and you're having great success. So congratulations on getting it launched. Congratulations on being able to pay yourselves. That's just <laughs> for entrepreneurs. Like, listen, that's a big, that's a big freaking deal for, for a lot of startups of being able to pay yourselves and, uh, and be able to make, you know, payroll, so to speak and get that done. So Franz, congratulations on doing that. Yeah, I appreciate it. All, all the kind words. And thanks for having me on again. Christian, any final words from you before I wrap it? No, I just got to say, um, it was amazing to me to look up today that, you know, when was Franz last on in terms of uh, representing Cyber Skyline? And it was episode 5, 2014. I'm like, dang. Yeah, yeah sick. coming up on like six years of, of uh, just... Yeah all things uh related to this so yeah. pr pretty cool um i get excited about cyber skyline because i see the amount of challenges and problems that are going on with the cyber education industry and i think that it is still as as developed as the cybersecurity industry is this is still a huge area of new and uncharted territory where people are trying to refine and make their stake in the ground. And I think uh, cyber Skyline has a unique approach to doing it that um, scales really well. So um, I'm, I'm kind of glad to get the digest of where uh, Franz and Toby are in their journey here and uh, hope to see it scale uh, in the years to come. Yeah. Good stuff. With that, we'll remind folks, don't forget uh, the average guy.tv power, just another startup, Maple Grove Partners. Get secure, reliable, high speed hosting from people that you know and you trust. That's, that's that guy down there. And uh, if you want to get 
um, information on plant stars is ten dollars a month. MapleGrovePartners.com. If you have us, if you want us to cover anything, or you got, it's really Christian. He he's a smart guy here. You can contact us, send us an email, Jim at theaverageguy.tv, or really just send it to Christian. Christian at theaverageguy.tv at Jay Collison at Borg Whisperer. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. A couple of you out there in the chat room, and many of you will listen after the fact. And we appreciate you guys doing that. We'll be back with 60. Uh, we made it, Christian. We at least made it to 60. Getting to 60. Keep 59 on here. 60 as we keep going. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. And thanks for listening. With that, we'll say goodnight. Good night. Good night.